The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Just give a word of introduction to Brian before he comes. Uh, first off, Brian and I have known each other almost 15 years. Uh, started, uh, we started becoming friends in the fall of 2002 back as we started at William Jewell College in Liberty. And uh, you've heard my stories of William Jewell many times. Many of you have. That once a proud institution hanging on God's word now stomps on God's word, if I can be so frank. It does. And we met in the fires of trying to defend what God's word says in the midst of a, of a college and culture that did not have anything that wanted to do that. And often as it goes in your life as it did in ours, when you stand with God with other people and his word with other people, you meld friendships that last to this day. Brian is my best friend. He comes to us from Grand Rapids, Michigan, if you can believe that or not. Uh, they've been with family this last week in Des Moines, so he drove three hours this morning. So he's had an energy drink, so he's, he asked if he can give a two-hour sermon. I said... <laughs> I said I get 45-minute ones, so that wouldn't be too much of a stretch. But uh, uh, Brian is married to Summer. Uh, they have one daughter, Anna, uh, who's 16 months old. Uh, and Leon, wherever you're at, brother, Leon said, you just keep bringing them in younger and younger each time they preach. So uh, Leon, brother, uh, at your good age, we're going to bring you up next week to average it out. So it works out. I'm just kidding. Uh, Brian is currently a student under care of the Presbyterian Reformed uh, Churches, and uh, he, as crazy as it sounds, he preaches almost every weekend in his small denomination, and uh, he comes to us as a seminary student, almost ready to finish up his MDiv. He took the long track. He got married, has a full-time job, and goes to school full-time as well. So uh, you will be blessed to hear Brian. And you say, Pastor, why aren't you preaching this morning? Isn't that your job? You preach every Sunday. It's good for you congregation to hear as God brings the word through other people. And you'll hear that more often this year. It's good for me as a pastor to be fed the word of God as well. So thank you for your allowance to do that, Deb, and personnel. Thank you for the opportunity to be fed this morning. So without any further ado, Brother Brian, why don't you come on up and uh, uh, bring us the word, and I can only imagine how you're going to introduce me. We'll see. As I lay things out, uh, Church of Jesus Christ, it is so good to be here with you today. I so appreciate my brother Darren giving me the opportunity to come and share from God's word with you today and very much appreciate Gilbert and the worship team singing the psalms. It is a practice of my own churches and it is something that I believe is of great benefit from God's word. When we read in Hebrews 12, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, you actually see there that Christ sings in the midst of the congregation with his people, the words of Psalm 22. I believe that in a special way, when we sing psalms to God, Christ joins with us in that singing and sings with us to God in Christ of Christ. So it is a blessing to be here with you today. Uh, I, I've known Darren, as he said, for many years, and although we certainly are in different denominations now, we share one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And because we have that one God and Father of all, I am overjoyed to be with you here today to share the gospel here from Mark chapter 2. 
So if you would turn with me to the second chapter of Mark, our reading today will be from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And in most churches, I couldn't do this, but I feel fairly confident today that I can tell you that if you are a visitor here at Tower View Baptist Church, and I haven't consulted with Darren or the deacons or anyone yet, but if you are a visitor, I believe that the Bible in your pew in front of you is something that you can take with you. Uh, So that is a gift that I get to give as a guest preacher of this church to you. (laughs) So praise God for a church which distributes the Word of God. Now, I'm going to be reading. Uh, They have been so gracious as to allow me to read from the King James Version, which we use in our churches. There will be a point at which it says the man sick of the palsy. This simply means the paralyzed man. Uh, So if you would join me now and stand together in the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the living and the true God. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing a paralyzed man, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the the paralyzed man lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the paralyzed man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the paralyzed man, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say unto thee, Arise, And take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Congregation, let us now go in prayer to our God. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, we do ask now that thou wouldst give the illuminating work of thy Spirit that we might this day as the congregation meets together to read and to worship thee, to proclaim thy holy word that thou wouldst make Christ to be our Savior, that we would hear the words which are said and preached, and though they are the the frail and feeble words of a man, that thou wouldst make them the very power and wisdom of God to us. We pray that we might have the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, that we might look past this healing to the great healing which Christ has wrought in his atonement, that we might look to his glorious obedience and once-for-all sacrifice and see in him the one who is chief among ten thousand. The beauty and the glory of Christ might be what we sat our eyes on today. We ask these things in thy blessing upon the preaching of thy word now in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Now, beloved congregation of Christ, 
Today, as we come to this scripture, it may be a story that you have heard many times before, and this is more than a story, this is a history. This is a historical narrative of what happened when our Messiah, Jesus Christ, walked in the flesh among us in Palestine thousands of years ago and truly wrought the miracles that are described here today. And before we go on to find the spiritual truth in this passage, I want you to just take a moment, step back with me, and put yourself in this history to see what's going on, to hear the words that are being said, and find yourself here next to Christ as he preaches the word in Capernaum. If you look to our scripture, that is the setting. Christ is in his earthly ministry. He's going about doing what is the task of any minister. He's preaching the word. Going from house to house, and people are clamoring, and they are gathering all around him. And we're told that immediately, this word that Mark likes to use again and again, all these people come around Jesus. He's in this house. They're pressing in from every side. And there is this paralytic, this paralyzed man who wants to come to Christ. How will he reach him? Well, thankfully, he has four very kind and gracious friends. Maybe on some sort of a constructed loft, who knows what. They take him, they bear him up, they bring him, but they can't get him next to Christ. So in that day, you had flat roofs, not you know, tapered like we have today, an area maybe to dry goods on the top of the house where Christ is and some stairs leading up to them. So these men think, okay, we're going to get to Christ one way or another. This man will reach the Savior. They take the man up to the roof, and then they start to dig and claw, and they actually begin dismantling the roof right over where they hear the Savior's voice. And then who knows, with some rope or something else, these four men start lowering this paralyzed man down until he reaches the feet of the Savior where he is preaching the word. I want you to, for a moment, just imagine this and the four faces kind of peering over this hole that has just emerged in the ceiling, looking down to see what will happen next. And what Scripture tells us then is that the first word to be spoken seems to be from Jesus. Seeing their faith, he says to the paralyzed man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And that is what we will find in this passage today. The very heart and the core of what we see here revealed by Christ is that forgiveness of sins. That the Son of Man, as he says, has the power, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And that is the meaning of this miracle and this sign and every other that is performed. The paralyzed man is like that finger at a football game, pointing to something else. Not to get too focused on the finger, but to look to where he's pointing to. The forgiveness of sins and the Savior who can grant them. Now, as we look into this passage, we're going to see several things here. We're going to see how Jesus has power and authority. What that means is that's just simply that he's like a superhero. Does he have some sort of telepathic powers? Is this outward physical power and strength? You've already heard some from your own pastor about the authority of Christ teaching 
with authority that the scribes did not have. And here we're going to say a few more things about what that authority is. We're going to find first that Christ has power and authority because he is a Savior who knows the heart. We'll find that this is a Savior who has power and authority as the Son of Man because he has the ability to forgive the debt of sin. And then finally and thirdly, we're going to see in this passage today that the one who knows the heart, the one who forgives the debt of sin in this miracle of healing points us to his character, his mission, the very gospel of Christ in the miracle that he performs on this paralyzed man. Now, congregation, as we turn to the passage then, there's something that you may not notice immediately, but if you read carefully, it's going to start jumping out at you. The whole passage reads kind of like a back and forth, like a conversation, doesn't it? It's a dialogue between Christ and the paralyzed man, a dialogue between Christ and the scribes, but only one person is speaking. Read for me, with me for a minute here. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, or the paralyzed man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Let's rewind a moment here and think what's been said to give this faith some outward form. The men have carried him, haven't they? They've taken the paralyzed man who can't move and they've lowered him down through the roof. But thus far, we haven't seen anyone say a single word. You might be able to look at the four people and say, hey, they have faith in Christ. They went all this way. They carried this man. But as far as the man goes, we at this point know nothing about him. Maybe he didn't want to have anything to do with that mad rabbi. There's a crazy teacher in town. He's doing all kinds of signs and wonders and teaching insane things. And now my friends are taking me and they're bearing me up and bringing me to him. As far as we know, that could be the case at this point. He hasn't walked there of his own. He hasn't said anything to tell us that he has faith that he can be healed. We just know that he was taken and he was put there. There's not a word coming from him. But then we read specifically to him with that particular language, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Not to the men who took him, but to the paralyzed man. Look again a little bit further down. It said immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, so they reasoned within themselves. If you read too fast, you're going to skip over this. You're thinking about the scribes and the Pharisees like they always do, sitting around mocking Christ, speaking of this mad rabbi, the one who claims all these great and wondrous things. This is actually the very first of a series of four different times that they attack Jesus in Mark chapter 2. Again and again, trying to go after him because his disciples are fasting or not fasting on the right day. Because his disciples are picking grains on the Sabbath. Everything that they can point out, they're going to the eating with publicans, sinners, tax collectors. They're going after Christ. But here, the very first time that they do, I want you to notice that they haven't said anything. 
the reasoning, the thinking that's going on has not yet emerged out through the mouth and it's still in the heart. They are reasoning in their hearts, it is said. And those younger people within the congregation, you may know a little bit of what this is like. And all of you older people have all already been kids, so you also know what this is like. When you're at dinner table or at the kitchen, and there's, say, a jar of cookies over there, and you're not allowed to go to it. Mom has told you time and time and time again, don't eat those cookies. And you're sitting there, and this little thought comes into your brain, I'd love a cookie right now. And then all of a sudden, you hear blaring across the kitchen, don't even think about it. (laughs) And you're just sitting there in shock. My mother can read minds. Now, that has to be a little bit of what the Pharisees, what the scribes are feeling here at this moment. They haven't even begun to attack him. They're just sitting there thinking, this man's uttering blasphemies. And before a word comes out of their mouths, why? What are you doing? Why reason ye these things in your hearts? And they're sitting there in shock. Now, this is the first reason that we find in this scripture congregation that Christ has power and authority to forgive sins like no other person. Now, as you grow older, you start to realize that your parents do not have the ability to read minds. You start to figure that out the very first time that you get yelled at, and you weren't thinking a thing. (laughs) You were completely, utterly innocent, and you just got lambasted. You were yelled at, and that was unfair. Because mom and dad don't have the ability to read minds. And every psychic hotline is a lie. But Christ does. And because of it, he can forgive sin. See, a lot of people have read this passage, and they've come to the four men and the man who is sick here, who's paralyzed. And they've read about it, and they said, how do I make this fit together? There's faith everywhere but in this man. We can't see the faith in his heart in any way. When the four men take him to Christ, he forgives the sins of the one who's taken. And so some people have gone so far to say maybe there's some sort of a weird transfer of faith. Maybe the four people who are taking him, their faith counts on his behalf, and then he's forgiven. And congregation, if you know anything of Scripture, that is also a lie. That is not consistent with what we find in God's word. There must be another way. Christ knows that little ember of faith that is present here in that paralyzed man's heart. And he forgives the sins of one who has not even yet confessed and spoken because he knows the heart. This is something that you find again and again when you read through the Gospels. You find it in John chapter 2 that Christ does not entrust himself to men because he knows what's in their hearts. Every thought, every inkling, even the things that sometimes you don't know yourself. Christ knows. Now see, your pastors have a great task in front of them just in shepherding you as a flock 
but it would be an impossible task if you asked Darren to come up here and to be able to read every one of your hearts. And I pray and I ask that you would never do such a thing. There are clergy in the world. There are priests and others who take it upon themselves to be able to proclaim, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But any minister of Christ cannot do that. What's the gospel message that we hear from Peter, from Paul, from John again and again? Repent. Believe. Your sins will be forgiven. No human being is able to come to you and, like Spurgeon said, just lift up your shirt tails, look for the E for elect on the back of you, and say, okay, you're one of God's. If they ever claim to, have nothing to do with them. There is no person outside of yourself who can come to you and give you that assurance, but Christ can because he knows your heart. Now, that's also a warning here. Because knowing the heart, many people say, God knows my heart. Only God can judge me. They wear T-shirts and little bands about it. And I always see them and think to myself, you don't know what you're saying. God does know your heart. God knows these scribes when they're sitting here blaspheming him in their heart. God knows the things that you do, that you have in your mind in the most secret of places. Everything that everyone around you in church would be horrified if you ever actually spoke. God knows those things. And here you have religious people, religious people like you or I sitting in the pew, people who know the law, they know the prophets, they've written it down, they've taught from it. In every outward way, they seem to be upstanding citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But God and Christ knows their hearts. And Christ peers with the gaze of the Savior into every one of them, and he sees the blasphemy, even when they're accusing him of blasphemy. And he rebukes them and tells them their end. Now, if you're a religious hypocrite today, there is a warning in this passage here for you. Because it is so easy for someone to come to church, to be surrounded by the people. You have people who enjoy being with you. You have the fellowship together. You enjoy singing the songs. But somewhere back there, there's an inkling in your heart that I don't need forgiveness. That I'm actually fairly an upstanding person. I know the Bible really well, and I don't really know that I need much teaching here today. I'm doing fine. If I can just get a little bit more for my family life, if I can just get a little bit more for my finances, if I can put those things together, I'm good. Well, Christ today peers into your heart and knows the content of it. And at that last day when you come before him saying, Lord, Lord, he will have known more than you even know about yourself. But for those of you who come here today and you're just crushed, you're downtrodden, you feel like you're persecuted and abandoned in every way, and when you look at yourself, you think you are an utter failure. You have no faith, or so it seems. You're perplexed by doubt here and there. The only thing that you can possibly do is get yourself up on Sunday morning to come to church, and that's it. That's all the energy that you have. 
as far as your spiritual life seems, it looks like it is paralyzed. You're just lying there, hoping that someone else will aid you. Christ is the same one who knows hearts. Even before you walk an aisle, before you rededicate ten times again or go to a great crusade, in so many lives, Christ sees that ember, that spark of faith that he has put there and kindled, and he breathes on it and makes it erupt into a great flame. When we're lacking assurance of our own salvation, we know the one who knows our heart better than we do. And that should comfort you if you're actually a child of God that he will be faithful to give you faith again, to make you look at him and his beauty and be glad. Because he's the knower of hearts, he's able to forgive sins in this way. A congregation, there's even more to unravel here. It's not just merely that Jesus knows your heart, that he's able to forgive sins, but there's something about his very character as the God-man It makes him the only one who can say such blatant words. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You see, you've already walked through the Ten Commandments as a congregation, and I've heard the sermons which have been preached to you time and time again, and so you should be beginning to know these things. You know that sin in the first commandment of idolatry and having other gods before God Most High, that is a sin against God. You know that in the second commandment, in the creation of these images here, false worship is a sin against God Most High. You can go down the list, blasphemy in the third commandment, the the failure to hallow the Lord's day in the fourth This first table of the law, these first four commandments are all immediately, directly, if you break them, you're offending God. But I trust you've already been able to recognize that sin isn't just against God in the first four commandments, but it's in the last six as well. You've heard in the sixth commandment that murder that striking out unlawfully against another brother or sister, another member of the human race, is a heinous offense against God. It is rebellion against Him. Why is that? It's because this one or that one is made in the image of God. It's like taking His emblem, His insignia, and driving a stake through it and spitting in His face, slapping God. It is an act of heinous rebellion, first and foremost against the God who made all men. In the fifth commandment, you see similar things. In Romans 13, when we talk about civil government, those fathers who are set over us in the civil sphere, they are ministers of God. The only authority that they have comes from God Most High. You will rebel against any lawful authority, whether it's the parents that are explicitly mentioned in the fifth commandment, or civil governors, or anyone else set over you in church, state, or your family, you are rebelling against God. And you can go on and on through the commandments and you get all the way to the 10th commandment and you talk about that covetousness, which is the first, which is idolatry. Covetousness in the heart of man, which seems to be almost the furthest from those commands immediately dealing with God, is actually an offense against God again. 
every sin that you commit, you owe a debt not primarily to the person that you've offended horizontally on this earth, but you owe a debt to God. So let me tie that back in now with what we see here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus here doesn't simply tell about something that is done, but he proclaims pardon. He proclaims absolution. He says that a debt is being discharged, and I'm discharging it now. Think about a human mediator. If Surely some of you have gone into a small claims court or the like. You've had a debt or something that you needed to get back, or maybe you've been on the other side of it. And you sat down with a mediator between the two of you to try and recover whatever those funds or property were. And just imagine for a moment if the mediator himself sat there and said, Okay, well, I think this is settled. Um, You get to keep the money and the debt is discharged. You'd be furious. You'd be outraged. You'd be angry because that mediator of himself does not have the power to forgive your debt. I see, Christ is a special, unique kind of a mediator. We read already in Psalm 85 about that mercy and truth, that righteousness and peace that have kissed and met together in him. And in this man, this God-man like none other, we find God and man meet together in the person of the mediator. So when he speaks here, He speaks a word directly from God, not on anyone's authority, but simply, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee in a way that no human priest or minister can. He says that your sins are forgiven, and they are. No question about it. Now, friends, there are, again, ministers, there are priests, there are people in this life who would claim to be able to have that power to forgive your sins, to be able to go into a confessional and to read down this long litany of everything that you've done in the past week and say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and then to hear those glorious words that you are pardoned, that you are forgiven. Now, friends, no human being No man apart from the Lord Jesus Christ has such an authority to proclaim those words. They don't know your heart. They don't know the authenticity of the faith that you have within it. And they certainly can only speak from God if they have any authority subordinately, declaratively. In other words, they can only say, if you repent... If you believe, if you look to Christ in faith, your sins will be forgiven, but they have no mind-reading skill to look into you and to proclaim that this is done. Jesus Christ here is able to forgive the debt of this man on his authority as the God-man. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees are actually kind of getting something right here. You look at the scribes, And most of the time, you know the church answer, right? They're wrong. The scribes have done it wrong again. Boy, they're a bunch of stupid fools. I'm glad that I have such great knowledge today. I wouldn't have got it wrong the way that they do. But actually, the scribes, if you read, they get something actually quite right, but then they twist it. 
who can forgive sins but God only? That's a biblical truth. Only God can forgive sin. What we've just explained, David prays in the 51st Psalm, against thee, thee only, speaking to God, have I sinned, in thy sight done this ill. God, when it comes down to everything, really sin is something that's against you. Sure, I hurt my neighbor. There needs to be reconciliation. Before I bring my gift to the altar, there must be that fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. But sin is a transgression. Sin is a wicked thing because of the character of the one that we have offended. And the scribes understand what Jesus is saying. They just flip it and they pervert it. Like the father of lies whom they follow, like in the garden, twisting those words, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but saying, just don't touch. Satan adds, as though God were some arbitrary Nasty deity. Serve me instead, is what Satan whispers. And here again, he twists the truth around. Sure, only God can forgive sins, and that's exactly why Jesus here is a blasphemer. That is what the scribes recognize. A congregation, what this means to bring it forward from the first century and put it in our terms today as though you could actually do something here. You are, from time to time, a scribe. You have the same sorts of instinct within your heart. Even if you are a Christian, you still battle with the flesh and indwelling corruption, and you find another law at work in your members. I do what I do not want to do, wretched man that I am. That's what the Apostle Paul exclaims. And if you are an unbeliever, if you are a hypocrite among us today, most certainly your heart is wicked and evil from very youth itself. You know what kinds of thoughts spring up, and you know these sorts of thoughts about forgiveness, that I can go to somebody else. All I need is some person in my life to tell me my sins are forgiven. Someone outstanding outside of me who can just look at me and say, there, you're done, you have it, you're with Jesus. Rather than examining ourselves, as Paul calls us, to see if we're in the faith, every one of us would rather just have a note in the back of our Bibles, have some minister or priest speak to us and say, there, it's done, it's so. But what Christ calls us to hear is that the only one who can give that kind of assurance, that kind of a gospel hope, is Him, speaking in His words. If you have a problem with assurance, friend, don't go to somebody around you. Don't go to a priest or a minister first, but go to the Word. Go to the very words which Christ has spoken and still speaks by His Spirit today. Read the words of Mark chapter 2. Find yourself in this paralyzed man and say, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Read Romans backwards, forwards, in every way that you can and preach the gospel to yourself until those words are used by Christ's Spirit to drive them home and to change your heart. Then go to your pastor. Then go to others. Then seek out their counsel. But first, Christ must speak through His Word for only He can forgive sin. A congregation... The problem would be with this passage and what so many do. You can just head down the road here in Kansas City and find many different groups and organizations that might do this. 
So many would read this chapter and become fixated, focused on the great miracle, the healing, right? The paralyzed man is able to walk. This is fantastic. And so you turn on the television and you see people who are raised up to walk and they're knocked over and they get back up again. You see new sight given. And these look like great signs and wonders, signs of the kingdom of grace coming and breaking through. And surely this is the same thing that is happening here by the word of Christ. But it is not the case. There is a very different kind of a miracle which is being worked here by Jesus. And I want you to see this. This will break open every miracle that Christ performs for you as you read through Mark's gospel. The miracle in this passage, even if you have a heading at the top of your Bible that says the miracle of the healing of the paralyzed man, scratch it out and write in the miracle of the forgiveness of sins. That is what Christ tells us himself. Read the words again. Is it easier to say to the sick, to the paralyzed man, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? Now, if you're reading this passage with the eyes of faith, if the Spirit of Christ is working in you, you know the answer to this question right away. It's not to take up thy bed and walk. I want you to understand that this is a paltry thing. This is no great sign and wonder. Not to diminish the miracle that Christ performs here, but this is no grand exercise of his power as the God-man. Later in Mark's gospel, you're going to see that he can speak to the very wind and the waves when he's lost to the storm at sea. He can silence the elements. He could bring forth grand armies from the earth if he wanted to. And here, just simply to make a guy walk again is not that great of a thing. He goes through Palestine and he heals and it all is a splendor, it's glory, it looks fantastic. But you have to understand that there would be so much more that he could do. It's a little strip of land in Palestine in the course of human history. It's a few people here and there. Where were the decades and decades of going to the hospitals, of making the dead to rise out of their graves? Where was all of that if that's the purpose of each of these miracles? That's not what's in view at all. See, this paralyzed man, he is going to die again. Even Lazarus, raised from the grave, he's going to fall back into death. The people who have had their eyes opened to be able to see the Savior, the one who says, I see men like trees walking, and then glimpses the Savior, his eyes will lie in the grave unseeing again the ears which are open to hear the glorious news of the gospel, those same ears will lie hearing now no human voices. If this is the miracle, if this is the sign and the wonder of Christ, then it seems to be no miracle at all. But Christ performs these miracles as a sign, as a pointer. And you should not miss the Christ, the Savior behind it, because you're so fixated on that pointing finger. Look at the nature of this man. He's paralyzed. He's about as close to death as you can possibly get. He's unable to move. He can't provide for himself. He has no livelihood. We don't know the extent of his paralysis. He doesn't speak at this point, so who knows? 
This is not merely pointing to a mere physical healing alone, but every one of these miracles tells us something about what Christ begins in the human heart here. That we as men and women apart from Christ, we are paralyzed, we are dead. It's not us seeking and looking and trying with all our might to come and find him, but this man is taken paralyzed and brought to the Savior, and the Savior peers into his heart. The Savior sees faith. The Savior has put that faith there, and he grants forgiveness of sins without a word. Lazarus, by the very word of Christ, is called forth from the grave, the very impossible thing that this dead corpse could hear the words of the Savior, yet those very words call him into life. This is Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. Skeletons have flesh and sinew put upon them and are raised up to be a great army. This is the church of Christ. This is the state of man. Every miracle that you saw in Mark chapter 1 was telling you the same thing, and now Jesus is explaining it. The lepers in their bodies are going to have skin that rots and crumbles in the grave again. But they're telling us about the plague and the disease of sin, the plague of the human heart that Solomon speaks of in his great prayer in 1 Kings 8. When you look to these great miracles and you see the driving out of demons, when you see healings there, Simon's mother-in-law, another healing there, what you are seeing is the good news of the kingdom of grace and what is worked where no one can see in the human heart but Christ does. Because many of us who have had family members who have been far from Christ and yet miraculously brought from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son know what is more impossible. When that rich young ruler is brought to Jesus Christ and he goes away sad and Christ is grieved for them, the disciples are thinking and they exclaim with, man, this is impossible. The impossible miracle here is a human heart, dead in sin, hardened against God and rebellion, enemies with him. By a simple word to be brought into that kingdom, transformed into a glorious new soul that seeks Jesus Christ. The paralysis that you find in this passage is not merely that of the body, but of the soul. And so this points us towards a life that has been begun now in the soul and is brought to its fullness, not when this person is raised to new life, but in that last day to come. See, the Son of Man has the power, he has the authority on earth to forgive these sins and bring it to its culmination. You probably know and you've said many times to yourself, that the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Well, friend, the work here begins in that human heart. It begins with the making of a new heart of flesh, one that loves Christ, that struggles every day walking towards him, arising and walking with the soul. And then on that last day, then we're going to see the wonder. On the last day to come when the trump sounds and the archangel's cry goes forth, then in that day the unseeing eyes now that saw before and now do not see again, they will look and they will behold Jesus Christ. This is the hope of Job. The one who said, though after my skin worms consume this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
eyes restored, ears restored to hear the archangels cry, sound in soul and body at that final day, that is where the miracle is brought to its fullness. That is the glorious work that Christ has done here in Mark chapter 2. So friends, as we come to this passage and we see these glorious things, if you've come here to the service, to sit in the chairs and to hear a sermon preached and to sing together glorious things of Christ, but you have murmuring in your heart, your eyes aren't fixed on Christ, you may sing of 10,000 reasons, you may proclaim with your lips that he is the chief among 10,000, but everything in your head is focused on the day-to-day, the things that are on this earth below. All that you really want is to get your family together, to have the right job for the right number of years and the retirement to follow, and everything will be okay. Well, we can't give you that today. If there's any promise in Scripture for this life, you've heard it from your own pastor's lips before, and I will say it again. The promises include families being divided and broken up. The promises include chastisement and discipline from your heavenly Father to make you more humble and to know the things of Christ and cling to him with all your faith. The promises include persecution in body and soul, an intense attack of Satan and all the demons and principalities against you because you're a child of God. Every miraculous work that you would want to be done on your behalf, we can't promise you except for one, the forgiveness of sins. And as you come here today and you hear this glorious gospel of grace, know that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time, and it is fast drawing to a close. The day is at hand, but the night is coming. When the Savior returns in that day for all of his children, will you be one of those who is counted among them? As you've heard the free offer today of the gospel of grace, has the response been in your heart that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Have you murmured against him? Or have you cried out with that voice, I believe, but I am a paralyzed, dead sinner. Help thou mine unbelief. With the empty hand of faith, just grasping to the Savior who comes for you. Friend, if you come with little faith that you can see, and you hear these words today, here is a Christ who comforts and breathes on your faith and enlivens it into a fire. Here is a Christ who knows your heart when even you don't and can comfort you. There is a day coming which you will see his face again. Friend, if you come here today with a little understanding of sin, you think it's no big deal. You think the things that you've done aren't that of murder and adultery. They're just little peccadilloes. They're just tiny things. You haven't broken any laws. You haven't committed any crimes. Christ knows Christ knows every thought that has ever entered your head when you've forgotten all of them. All of that will be brought to account before you at the last day, and you will be held accountable. And friends, if you come today seeking everything but forgiveness, if you come not looking for a Savior, not recognizing this debt, here is your wake-up call to come to him to receive him. When you feel you cannot come, the Lord will grant strength and faith where there is none. Springs in the desert 
dry bones raised to life. That is the wonder of the Savior who works. Well, finally, congregation, we will close with this. You see at the end of this passage what happens when a people hear. They see such a glorious miracle. They hear with the ears of these words, Sons, thy sin, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. We are told in verse 12 that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion, or we've never seen anything like this. The hope is that today that you would not simply say, wow, this is great. Thousands of years ago, there was a man who couldn't walk who could again. But just as the many marveled and said, he teaches like one who has authority that today you would get it that today the Lord would grant it to you. That you would see the Son of Man has power and authority on earth to forgive sins. And out of that great knowledge, like the leper that we read of in Mark 1, that you would go out and it would be so uncontainable that it would burst forth. That your friends or your family are going to get tired of hearing this Jesus name again and again and again because you've seen the most wondrous thing your eyes could behold, the face of the Son of God made flesh. That because of that heavenly vision of Christ like Stephen saw standing at the right hand of the Father, you would be able to endure the persecution, the martyrdom, anything that Satan throws your way because of that preserving work of the Spirit in your soul that a small ragtag band of followers in Palestine with their leader killed could so spread over the face of the earth that we would see promises in Scripture that the glory of the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of God's Word would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is no work of mere man, but that is the power of the glorious gospel of grace as it goes forth. That is the power and authority of the Son of Man and the forgiveness of sins. Jews seek for a sign, we are told. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, the one who is the power and the wisdom of God. May the Lord make him to be such to every one of us. Let us pray together. O most holy and glorious God, Lord, we confess before thee that we are a people who so often forget the heinousness, the grievous nature of our sins against thee. Our God, we even this day have thought, even if we think we have not said nor done, we have thought things which have injured thy honor. O Lord, we have brought shame to the name of Christ. We seek thy forgiveness, O Lord, for thou knowest our hearts. We pray that this day thou wouldst make this gospel of grace to be sweet to us, that we would wholly and fully embrace him by the work of the Holy Spirit, that as we feel the paralysis of our souls, that we feel deadness still within, that thou wouldst put to death and kill that old man and bring new life. We ask, O Lord, these things not because we are righteous, for even our best works are as filthy rags in thy sight, but now that thou wouldst do this for the sake of the righteousness of Christ, that thou wouldst look upon us in him and proclaim that we are his beloved sons, that thou wouldst look upon us in Christ and be pleased with us. 
We ask these things only in the name of the one mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you very much, Brian, for bringing the word to us this morning.